1: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
0: to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Brittany Cole, who is a fellow Nashville resident. Brittany, how are you today? I'm well. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. A quick bio here. Brittany is a professional speaker, career coach, and consultant helping organizations engage, develop, and retain diverse talent. You were introduced to me through my sister-in-law, through some Nashville organizations that you all are both a member of, and you have a book either it's coming out or it's out. I read, I read a version of it. What is the status on the book?
2: Yes. So you have, have access to the ebook, the hardcover prints signs, copies are available for order on the website. And just after the holidays, we'll be
0: shipping those out. Awesome. And what's the title again, or how p- can people look it up?
2: Sure. It's thrive through it. And you can access it at thrive through it
0: Awesome. And I read it this week and took, some notes and have an outline and I kind of want to jump right into it. You know, I personally went through a period of adversity just about a year ago. Uh, It was a combination of some personal things and some professional things and was having a, a challenging time emotionally. And I started with the recommendation of my wife, reading a lot of Brene Brown, Angela Duckworth talking about perseverance, grit, being able to be vulnerable how to thrive in, you know, modern culture. And, you know, for me specifically, it was a challenge because as a white male in finance, who's 38, I was never really given the vocabulary or the toolkit to deal with my emotional intelligence. And your book, I think is really timely and and goes in depth into giving people, some of the tools and skills to, to be able to leverage to work our way through this messy thing that is life. I'm not even sure how to introduce you, frankly, because you have like six different jobs and you do all these different things. But maybe give a little bit of background on yourself and, and some of the focus and the work that you're doing today would be really helpful before we jump into uh, the outline of the book.
2: Absolutely. Well, and thank you for that. Thank, thank you for reading the book. And I couldn't agree more. I think even as a black woman, that's often the experience and from a different perspective, but how do I show up authentically and share leaning into my vulnerability, hence Brene Brown, but also I'm a leader and, you know, there are other people that are expecting me to show up. So definitely looking forward to to that conversation. But um, I grew up, I'm a native of Nashville. I am the youngest of three. And one of the things that I always share that's so vivid in terms of just um, you know your parents and kind of the the values they instill in you, my dad would always tell our brothers and I that the biggest room in our house is the room for improvement. So that kind of shaped my paradigm in terms of just how I approached school and um, getting an academic scholarship to go to UT Knoxville and I was on this path of of actually planning to go to law school and I was studying political science and communications and was introduced to the healthcare industry. So in, introduced to Pfizer, which is where I spent the bulk of my corporate career through a career development organization called Inroads. And so Inroads, think of it almost as like a diversity and inclusion kind of career placement organization. But what they really did was help to, equip early talent. So I started working with En-ROADS as a high schooler, going to Toastmasters and prepping for the ACT and SAT. And then at UT Knoxville, they were the reason really why I was introduced to Pfizer through an internship. And so ended up interning and my eyes were open to just the world of, you know, being able to really serve physicians in a way that I didn't even realize was a thing, you know, in terms of like being able to help to share updates when it came to pharmaceuticals and things like that. So I spent about 12 years in the commercial space there doing everything from, you know, sales, primarily sales management, but also marketing and then diversity and inclusion work. And it was that work that really sparked, really was my purpose in showing up in other roles in terms of just people development and helping to shift culture on the teams that I was on, but really focusing in on not just the question of why why aren't there more people like me in the organization that look like me, but also what are the conditions that have led us here that we don't have more diversity within the organization. And so I decided to pursue that work outside, you know, side hustling in, in terms of being an entrepreneur and still working. And I was speaking and in coaching initially only, and that really led me into saying, "Hey, I'm helping diverse talent. I'm seeing the the shifts in terms of." being able to help black and brown women and men get promotions. But then they go back into an organization that oftentimes the culture isn't inclusive enough to sustain even their attempts to be better and show up more and all of the things. And so I really saw an opportunity to help organizations and really take the leap of faith and and do that through Career Thrivers. So Career Thrivers is an inclusive leadership development firm that I founded, and we really operate in, in three primary ways. One, learning and development. So that's things like training, things like workshops, things like speaking, but also diversity and inclusion consulting, so really getting in and assessing the landscape and the culture at the organization and really answering some of those questions around, you know, why does our organization look this way and what do we want to see more of and how do we, you know, shift to just talking about bias to really addressing inclusive behaviors and what that looks like. Um, And so we do that. And then the last bit is just partnerships and events just to get the message out there. So it has been a joy. As you can imagine, it has been very full this year um, in terms of that work,
0: but it's been great. Yeah. I mean, considering everything happening on the social scene with Black Lives Matter and the pandemic and seemingly across Wall Street. And it, it seems like this happens where people work for generations to elicit this type of change and it's glacial. And then all of a sudden there's a tipping point that hits and it's inevitable. And now the conversation on Wall Street is you know, a, a demand from the shareholders to have a more inclusive and diverse makeup of of boards and you're seeing that play out on the national stage with Biden and his cabinet and his running mate and all these things. And now it seems like there's just been this huge sea change. I mean, from your perspective, are you seeing that play out across boardrooms and small companies that you consult with?
2: Absolutely. Yes. From small businesses to large matrix corporations. And you hit the nail on the head, Brian, in terms of just this work. It really isn't new. It isn't new and it's also very tied to politics. And so those are two things that I think, you know, especially the latter that we don't often like to talk about in the workplace, but diversity and inclusion work, the training, the practice, the billion dollar industry started out of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So it started out of of legislation and initially diversity training was a punitive measure for organizations who had been found guilty of discrimination um, after that legislation. And so it's just interesting that, you know, when you look at the history of this work, you know, from the late 1960s, and yes, there have been improvements, absolutely. But I think when you get to that question of moving beyond diversity to say, do we have an equitable workplace? Do we have outcomes here that aren't determined by people's differences? And in most organizations, that that the answer to that question is no. You know, we, we don't. The the tops, the tops of the organizations are homogenous. They, they look the same, not just diversity for the sake of diversity, but also ends up impacting, you know, diversity of thought and, and other things that drive innovation within an organization. And so The question becomes, how do we shift that? And yes, that's been the question of 2020 in organizations, big and small. And you're exactly right. It's more of just a a nice to do, but it's absolutely a business imperative.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know for my own organization, if you look at the website, it's basically just a bunch of white guys. And we've worked hard to, to try to change that. But I think it was really until this year, we realized that we weren't going to be operating at the highest possible efficiency, unless we had a more diverse group and voices in the room, in order to allow us to grow, and that's something that we're actively working on. So I applaud your efforts and, and all the people that came before you because it is hard work and eliciting systems of change and power dynamics is a is, is hard, especially when you're dealing with you know a minor literally a minority group going up against a population that has. For the most part, built pretty wide moats around their power structures over the last, you know, hundred years. So the work you're doing, I think, is important and vital. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about what led you to to write this book? And I want to get into conceptually this resilience roadmap, what it means, and how you know individuals and, and even small business owners can use it to be happier and more productive and 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 um, you know more engaged with the community around them sure
2: i definitely felt led to write the book. And I say that because I was writing a a different book at the time that I started. So um, I was writing a book that was very much centered around how do you navigate corporate America regardless of your difference? So what are the unwritten rules about how to move up within an organization that I felt like, you know, was the book that I had experience around, but it was also this quote unquote strategic book in terms of the company that I was building and the coaching that I was doing. And so that book made sense. This book was... Oh, so challenging. And, and, and beyond just, you know, the writing process, but um, the story and just the emotional nature of the book. And so little behind the scenes, I actually ended up writing the book a second time because I realized the first time I wrote the book, it really wasn't for the reader, it was really for me. It, it really was almost read, almost like a journal where I didn't realize I needed that process to really even further journey through my own grief process. So the the, the catalyst for the book is really around just helping people to make this shift in terms of how we view resilience. So typically when we, we when we talk about resilience, people often equate it to, you know, having a rubber band and being stretched but you're able to bounce back really quick. And like, oh, wow, we, 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 you know, we champion those people, we cheerlead those people who, man, they went through something really hard and they were able to bounce back really fast. And what I experienced personally, but also vicariously was that, that's often not really the truth. That's often the mask or the cape that we think people need to see in order to see us as being strong and quote unquote, resilience. And so, <laughs> the book tall order, but for my assessment, I think there's this, you know, really heightened need when it comes to mental and emotional well-being to redefine resilience and really think of it differently versus having this kind of rear view lens approach of I had this really hard moment and I'm trying to get back to where I was before that happened. In, in large part, that, that never happens. Like you you don't return there. And for me in my personal experience, um, definitely had some career moments of grief that I didn't realize that I talked about in the book, but really the moment that really shook me was the death of my mother. And it was on the heels of a, of a major career promotion of me, you know, transitioning from sales to marketing, spending two years to get that promotion, moving out of Tennessee for the first time into the middle of Manhattan and having this amazingly dreamy career experience, like living the dream in the Big Apple, my mom being, I used to call her my chief cheerleader, best friend. We did girls trips like every year. Um, And then three months after I took that role, she passed unexpectedly. And so for me, it's like, I'm trying to show up like, oh, I'm fine. You know, I'm good. Things are great. But that, that wasn't really true. And so I had to learn how do I really sit with where I am right now, even though the feeling, feelings and emotions are uncomfortable, but how do I deal with it in order to truly heal so that I can move forward um, with what I like to call
0: real, real resilience with courage, authenticity, purpose, and joy. And so talk about the roadmap. How does it work? Is it, is it a process that that you advocate that people go through step-by-step step, or can you kind of dip in and out depending on where you are in the spectrum? How can how can you use the tools that you're providing in the book the best way?
2: Yeah, so the intention of the roadmap is to really think about it much like we think about taking a long road trip that I don't know anyone that takes a long road trip probably over four hours, that doesn't stop and pause, you know, and have a rest moment, whether it's getting gas or just getting out to stretch. And so the idea is that you know, you have this intended destination that oftentimes is likely the same, even though you face some type of adversity or extreme loss. So 2020, most businesses in terms of their long-term vision may have shifted some, but it's still on that same trajectory. However, the path to get there is different. And so the idea is not that there's this linear approach because grief is so individualized, it's so complex and it's so unpredictable. So it's not necessarily about this is how you need to move through this emotion to journey forward but it's more about here are the stops that maybe you need to think about taking along the journey and maybe you go you no not maybe you likely will <laughs> to go back and and reroute and, and come back around again but the idea is that um, you journey through this space of grief which is you know your initial like the thing that happens the loss that happens the the client that you lost the relationship that ended the loved one that passed the the routine that you're grieving whatever the case may be in terms of how we think about grief helping us to expand that but also recognizing it so that happens right but then oftentimes our approach to that is this grit approach this approach of like okay i've got to power through this and in that section you'll notice you know the rest stops or the, or the points along that path are how do you still show up as a leader and still lead, right? Still embody this sense of grit, but also still being authentic to where you are and leaning into that vulnerability. So one element that's really key in that section is around having empathy conversations, being able being able to communicate people from where you are, recognizing where they are and really making a meaningful connection. Um, and so it's grief, grit. And then the last section is about grace. How do we give grace to ourselves and also extend grace to others. And for me, just in terms of my journey, a large part of that um, in, in in traveling through my grief, not trying to get over it or go around it was really about showing up and being what I needed. So this idea and lens of, of service being really important um, as we journey through. So the roadmap really serves as a guide to say, hey, here's some opportunities to think about, maybe I need to stop here and deal with this space, this topic, whether it's acknowledging your feelings or being what you need for other people through the lens of service as you journey forward.
0: Yeah. So let's go step-by-step. And and I love your use of acronyms. I'm I'm a big fan personally, and it goes back to law school, frankly, where I think you made the right call not going, but grief, great grace. So let's start with grief and you use the the kind of the bullet points of acknowledging the feelings and identifying the loss but can you wrap that conversation into what your identity is as a black woman in the workforce today and and how you experience that grief professionally
2: sure yes
0: <laughs> really big, big question qu- big question
2: big question but definitely an important one so you know often, and it's so funny you asked this, I was thinking about this earlier, just how to articulate this, that the inequities that Black women, and I'll just specifically focus on Black women because that's how I identify, the inequities that Black women experience in the workplace go beyond not getting the promotion. Like, It ends up being deeper than just oh I didn't get the job. There's this idea of of emotional tax in terms of the experiences around microaggressions and and inequities that you experience. You know, and and it's small things. It's small things, and that's why I believe learning and development becomes so important because sometimes there is this block for leaders that they don't even realize that you know you have a sales team that is working out in the field, and you checked on Brittany you know every day this week but you didn't call rebecca not once you know how does that show up what does that look like um and, and why is that what, what's the rationale for that you know really digging into that so as, as a black woman oftentimes i was experiencing these inequities that i'm like okay you just got to power through this like you know this this is the way that you know i was raised it's it's what my parents said going back to just lessons from my home growing up one of them was you got to be twice as hard to get half as much, you know, and and my house wasn't the only house where that lesson was taught. And so having that mindset of like, OK, Brittany, you're you're going to to face instances that are unfair, that that are inequitable, but you need to push through that. And I think you have enough of those moments and it's like, OK, this isn't just I didn't get the job, but this shows up as like self-doubt and imposter syndrome and being sad and, you know, questioning, do I even belong here? And like, what am I doing with my life? You know, It shows up much more emotionally and I think mentally more heavy than we oftentimes acknowledge. And I think we're also seeing that shift this year that this conversation around wellness looks very different for diverse talent because of, you know, the extra things that we have to think about that oftentimes um, our white counterparts don't have to, when it comes to how we're, we're navigating the workplace.
0: Is it because there's just a lack of internal infrastructure there and community that is is, how much of it is the isolation or, or just the fact that you may be, the only black woman on the team or on your floor or in the building, how, how much of, of that goes into it?
2: Yeah, I think that does play a part, Brian. I think one of the just tangible ways that shows up oftentimes is, is with sponsorship, right? So, so most people will tell you if you're, if you are looking to really navigate any career, but particularly I'll just lean on my experience here, being in a large corporate matrix or matrix organization, you've got to have people that are singing your praises in the rooms that you're not in. Right. So it goes beyond just having a mentor that's guiding you along the path, but there has to be someone that's in positional authority that has power, that people respect that are in those, you know, calibration meetings or talent planning meetings. And they're talking about why you, you know, need to be in the high in the hypo grid or whatever the case may be at your organization in terms of how you do talent planning. So oftentimes, right, because of things like likability bias, it becomes easy if the people in those seats of power, let's just assume they're they're majority white men, right? Naturally, we know through research that we are attracted to people that are like us. So, you know, I'll use you, for example, you know, Brian sees Paul and Paul reminds you of yourself and you're in that meeting and you're like, listen, you know, Paul is is on really great work this year. I think he definitely needs to be, you know, in this top. like there's just this natural um, advocacy that happens. And oftentimes it's not intentional, but neutrality is just as bad as like, you know, trying to not promote the talent. Right. So I think that when you think of isolation through the lens of like, how are leaders being intentional about ensuring that they're advocating for talent across the organization, regardless of, you know, their difference and what they look like. I think that plays a a large role in ensuring that your leadership teams
0: are more diverse. And that likability bias, it's an interesting term. Do you think, and I am always a little bit more pessimistic maybe than others, but Do you think that comes from a sense of fear that if we do embrace diversity, if we do have different voices in the room, that in some form or fashion, it means that I get less of the pie, that it's a zero sum game, that if I give some away, that means that, that I won't have as much moving forward. Do you think that plays a part in that? You know, I think that oftentimes that is in the
2: back of people's minds in terms of having a very fixed mindset to the distribution of power. So yes, I think the larger conversation absolutely includes that. I also think though, there are times when it truly is unintentional, right? And I I say that because, you know, I, I have colleagues that do this work that, I'll give you an example in terms of the business case for diversity and inclusion. Like it has been proven since the early 1990s. I have colleagues that will not, like if an organization wants them to come in and educate on the business. They won't take the work, regardless of the bottom line. <laughs> they won't take the work. Um, like It's just a sign for them that like, these people don't get it. They're not trying to get it because this is very clear. I try very hard to err on the side of grace that despite, yes, this work has been going on since the late 1960s, there is nothing that we experienced this year or saw that is new. No part of it is new. So I I get the frustration around that. I also get the call to action around that. Like we can talk about it all day, but what are we doing? Because this isn't new. It's your responsibility. I agree with all of that. I also think that oftentimes there is this, that's why it's called unconscious bias, right? There's this unconscious bias that yes, I am attracted to, I am looking out for people that look like me, people that remind me of myself. um, And also... Um, there's this there's this aspect of when you become more aware, it also helps you then to look out for that same thing, right? It's like, you know, you see a car you like, like for me, you know, the next car on my list is is a this Volvo mid, midsize SUV. I think it's the, the XC90. And I feel like I see it everywhere. I'm like, I see the, I see the white Volvo XC90 everywhere. Like that's my car. That's the next car I'm getting. And it's not that likely necessarily that there are more of them on the road. I'm just more aware of them now because that's the car that I want. Like I, that that's my next car. So I think in like terms, when you're talking about people, right, if there isn't that education that's happening, you, you show up looking for yourself and you promote yourself and you have things on your interview form, like motivational fit, which promotes homogenous groups, because perhaps instead of looking for a culture fit, you should think about a culture ad so that your team is more diverse. And so there's, there's subtle things like that, that I think education really plays a big role in. And it's why I do the work that I do every day.
0: It's important. So thank you for all that work you're doing. Let's transition into grit. And, and again, I could speak personally. <laughs> when, I, when I first heard this concept of grit that came out, I can't remember when Angela's book came out a couple of years ago, maybe, but my interpretation of grit was you know, coming from New England with kind of that white Protestant background. It was more of the <laughs> subsuming any emotions that you might have, and doing the job at hand and working through the, the pain and the discomfort in order to accomplish that task and don't ever talk about it. And, and that was kind of the, the idea of, of grit that I had. And it was something that was, that was very much lauded in our community and in our family of being hardworking, you, you know, not taking time for yourself, because uh, that would be a selfish concept. Um, but I like the way that you redefine it and you put a different spin on it. Can you talk about kind of conceptually how you think the right way to think about grit in a more healthy sense would be or is?
2: Yeah. And so I think when we're thinking about, you know, how how do you push through um, despite the circumstances, you know, that capability is definitely important. I think where it can become, quite frankly, you know, dangerous when we're talking about You know, just our emotional and mental well being is when we don't navigate that place from from a space of authenticity, right? From saying like, "Yes, I'm moving through this." So, in in the example of just my own life, you know, a few weeks passed after my mother's services, and I came back to work. You know, I had to come back to work. I really didn't have a choice. You know, I I, I did, but at the same time, I had to I had to come back to work, right? And so like I've got to show up here every day. I still have, you know, this very large budget. That's the budget of many organizations, like total budget that I'm responsible for managing. Like I still have all of these things that I have to do. So the grit comes in in I'm still I'm showing up every day. I'm leading this team. I'm moving forward. But I think the authenticity when I talk about, you know, re- revealing, right, which I think is just a non-negotiable when it comes to to healing and getting to this other side of, of grief and loss. And that doesn't happen if we don't share like, yes, I'm moving forward, but this is where I am. And this is how I'm feeling emotionally. And these are the thoughts that I have. And here's how I'm dealing with it. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not pretending that it's not there because it is. So I was going back into work every day, initially trying to act like I wasn't in the very, very early stages of my grief. Like literally... I had this relationship with my mom where um and, and many probably can can relate to this where she knew my schedule right like when i go into work it's like meeting 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 of the time, like there's not a second to breathe. Like if I don't stop to take lunch, there is no lunch. Like that's just, that's New York culture. I think regardless of industry, but that was very much my experience. And I mean, she would call throughout the day, you know, so I I would have moments where she would call and be like, you know, mom, about to head into a meeting. You know, I'll call you back (laughs) around five. And so going back into work after her death, I had moments where, I mean, I would be in a zone, like about to present to my VP and I would just glance over at the phone. And I would just be a mess. And I'm like trying to get it together before I go in and present, you know, why we need to shift funds from here to there. And I think, you know, I had this moment that I talk about in the book where I was having a skip level meeting, um, with my leader's leader and she asked how I was doing and she asked in a way, you know, people, you know, asking, you know it's almost like they're just speed, speed and passion. You know, how's it going? And you give the quick answer. But she asked in a way where I knew she was asking me how I was navigating, you know, the 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 loss of my mom and the the revealing and the risk comes in. And like in that moment, it's like, Brittany, do you give the textbook answer? You know, I'm fine. Things are good. Let's get on with why I'm here. Cause your time is important. My time is important. I know that we have an agenda or do you lean into vulnerability here and answer her question honestly? And I chose the latter in that moment where much like you, I was taught like, I'm good, things are great. We're moving right along. And I said, you know, I'm really struggling. And, you know, I had a moment before I came in here and and I just shared authentically where I was. And she looked at me and she said, Brittany, one, we can reschedule this meeting, but two, if you have that moment, At any moment, regardless of who you're meeting with, you have my permission, not that you need it, but I want you to know if you need to take off for the rest of the day and work the rest of your meetings from home or just clear your calendar, that's why you have an admin do that. And Brian, I don't remember that I ever needed to do that, but I can't even fully explain to you the weight that lifted off of my shoulders just from hearing her say that. And I, and I don't think I would have heard her say that if I didn't lean into vulnerability in that moment. So grit is about showing up, but it's really about showing up authentically and leaning into that vulnerability to have those tough conversations, to embrace being uncomfortable, but also to reveal transparently where you are so that you can fully heal.
0: And, and is that part of the, the work that you do on a consulting basis to help professionals and managers and leaders understand how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Because I don't think... You know, I didn't get an MBA, but I really don't think that's a skill set or uh, anything that we're ever taught. And, and I know I don't necessarily have the vocabulary around how to do that correctly. Is that something that you help people understand how to have those empathetic conversations without coming across as patronizing or just to your to your point earlier, oftentimes it's just a throwaway comment or a throwaway question that we ask each other as a, as a cultural construct.
2: Yes. And so, and I'm, I'm so, glad. I feel like this is one of the first times in terms of a podcast that I'm getting to really um, go through the resilience roadmap, but, but yes, one, it is a curriculum that's being built out, but it's also very much um, a workshop around empathy conversations and just taking the approach that again, is very different to how we typically navigate Crucial Conversations or Difficult Conversations um, and a nod to both of those resources. So Crucial Conversations is a book, it's fantastic. I use that in coaching often. Um, Difficult Conversations is also um, a book as well based on some Harvard research around how do you navigate negotiation two fantastic resources. My take on empathy conversations, though, is really about when you're having conversations that are emotionally charged and how do you decenter yourself? Because typically what we do when we approach hard conversations is that we don't, we center ourselves. We don't center the other person. So we go into the conversation thinking about what's the purpose of this conversation? Like, why am I choosing to have this conversation? What is the outcome that I want to have? And then the the thing that we often do is, what are the I statements that I'm going to have throughout the conversation? It's like, nothing about that is about the other person. And so the the whole framework for empathy conversations is about starting them with inquiry. Like, instead of thinking about your I statement, think about the question that you want to have, you want to ask, that's going to give you the opportunity to connect in a more meaningful way with who you're talking to. So it's not about you having your I statement together, but it's really about how, what is it that I need to understand about the person that's sitting across from me to be more aware of how they're experiencing the workplace, the world, et cetera. Um, and then to make a a meaningful connection.
0: Why do you think this is happening now? I mean, why across this millennial generation, because to our conversation earlier, it seems like management teams and boards and shareholders are now insisting on this, that it needs to be, you know, It needs to be common across organizations to have these type of workshops, consulting and great arrangements. Why not five years ago? Why not 10 years ago? What do you think is the inflection point?
2: Yeah, I definitely believe that uh, millennials are the inflection point. And so I, Career Thriver started out very focused on age diversity from that perspective, really trying to organizations understand millennials work with millennials. But I think oftentimes, you know, millennials get this wrap of like, Oh, you know, they want the, I don't know, pool table in the break room and the flexible work hours and all of these things. And at the end of the day, especially when you, when you look at the research, I like think the Gallup data around what millennials want really isn't about any of that. It's about, Um, doing meaningful work, having a sense of purpose within the workplace. It is about the organization valuing diversity. It is about having opportunities for leadership development to know that not only your work, that, that your work is valuable, and that you have this understanding of how your work is playing a bigger role in terms of the mission of the organization, but also that there's this opportunity for forward advancement that's not always, you know, title promotions, but is also includes investments in terms of professional development and so i think because we're seeing this shift in terms of just you know the the dominant generation within the workplace um, i think that millennials are in large part why we're having more of these meaningful conversations because for millennials it's not just about the bottom line like there's so many millennials that pass up promotions or you know six figures or multi six figure salaries because they want to go start a social organization or, you know, do, do work that is meaningful and purposeful for them. And so helping organizations really to speak that language is really important, but also understanding that, you know, I think that in large part, that's why we're having these deeper conversations that are beyond just, Hey, I'm sending you this check on the 15th and the, in the last day of the month. And I expect you to do this work. No questions asked. We're good. We're good. Like that doesn't cut it for the
0: millennial generation. I would agree with my own personal experience and I can only speak to my own background and, and, you know, being a white male and the privilege that I have, but I, I think part of it is at least within my community, we saw our parents, this period of massive change in the sixties and seventies, and then they were sold a bill of goods by corporate America in many ways. And now we see our parents at the end of that journey, not really very fulfilled with their corporate experience or with their professional experience, and they they may have a lot of dollars in the bank account, but <laughs> they they kind of made a deal with the devil in a lot of ways, and they're left with at least the, the 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 folks that I know not a very robust or rich social life, frankly, and so I I think that's kind of part of it. We don't want to have that same experience when we're in our 60s or 70s. Absolutely. Yes,
2: <laughs> I agree.
0: So let's move on to the third one, Grace, which, and I'm just going to kind of quote one of the, I love this from the book, you know, progress, not perfection, but then this really good question of <laughs> to, re, to reframe the experience and, and to kind of put in perspective, how are you finding meaning in your present challenge by reimagining who you will become through it? We're on the other side of that experience. Can you talk a little bit about how that interacts with the first two components of this roadmap?
2: Sure. Yes. So, and, and I'll go back just to sharing my, my own personal journey here. What I realized as I was journeying through my grief process, the grit of showing up at work, really having the moments of leaning into to vulnerability, having the uncomfortable conversations, I noticed that I wasn't the same. And I think that when we experience deep loss, it, it changes us. And I know oftentimes we don't like to say like, oh no, I haven't changed. Like I'm still the same, but I'm not the same woman that I was before June 5th of 2017. And so I think understanding and really thinking through, you know, how has this you know this grief, this loss, this adversity. How does this impact who I can become, and and how does this show me the ways that I can be better as I move forward? becomes really really important. And so, you know, things like self care, which I talk about in that section, which isn't about the spa day or going to the nail salon, but it's really about am I showing up to to be what I need for me, so that I can pour not from a cup with a few drops, but that I can pour from a full cup, you know? And I think that's so critical as a leader because, you know, I really believe that self-care becomes synonymous with service when we think of it that way. That me taking the time, making the time to invest in my personal development or personal leadership helps me to show up better, for the people I'm serving through my title or my role, and so it, it, it in essence, if you think about it from the opposite end, it does a disservice when I'm showing up at work and I haven't done that work. Like I, I'm not taking the time that I need to understand where I am, to work through my own process, to answer the questions that I, that I, you know, that I need to ask internally, um, and making the space for that. So that I can show up and be a better leader. I think that that becomes really important. And then like I mentioned earlier, you know, part of, of grace is also extending grace. And I think I know I talk about in the section too, there's um, there's a lot to say around, you know, just how we communicate through all of this as it relates to to sharing the load and kind of, you know, how we are, I believe culturally and especially for leaders, right? We want to be problem solvers for people. We want to, you know, have the answer, be able to point people to how they can resolve their issues and extending grace really is about sometimes suppressing that urge. And I have it like, if you're familiar with this, I'm high, high D. So I'm like, How do we solve this problem? It's a problem. How how do we solve it? How do we close the gap and move forward? But when people are hurting, that can come off as very dismissive. And oftentimes people really aren't even looking for that. They're just looking for the connection. And sometimes that means you're just present. And I don't even say, you know, I say just because again, you know, Heidi, it's like, I need to be doing something, but sometimes that's not the case. And so I think all of those are ways that we give ourselves grace, but also extend grace to other people.
0: Yeah, I've been doing some, Just, you know, homework and and bedside reading about a lot of work psychologists um, were doing about hero culture in the 60s and the 70s. And and it seems like, to your point, (laughs) there's this alpha male concept of, you know, being the fixer, of having a problem, being able to solve it, and then, you know, being seen as the hero of the story. But oftentimes, that's almost counterproductive to building a more empathetic, functional team. Mm-hmm. So do you think, in order to be a really true, truly great leader or manager, that you have to go through some kind of process like this? Is this part of the journey?
2: You know, Brian. I think that it is, and it's better when we recognize it because I think oftentimes we don't we don't want to acknowledge it because we think the opposite's true. We think that being a better leader means that I showed you how fast I got over this thing that happened. Like I showed you how fast our company was able to bounce back from the challenges of 2020, you know, or, or you heard leaders say things like, you know, even through this pandemic, you know, Oh, we're, you know, this is our, this is what we're doing. You know, this is our plan for this year until we can get back to normal. And it's like, um, (laughs) Newsflash, we're not getting back to where we were, you know, b- before March. Like that's that's just not happening. So how how do you, you know, give people the tools, which is what I really hope this work is to help them to reimagine and reinvent, to be comfortable with the new place and space that you're in to journey forward. And I think that it it definitely is important for leaders. It's also important if you are trying to build an inclusive organization because part of what you were mentioning in terms of just this hero complex oftentimes shows up when it comes to like, okay, we've noticed we have this, you know, challenge of a lack of diversity within our organization and we need to fix it. And how do we fix it? You know, and there's this like drive to like, I was having this conversation last week with a CEO. It's like, it's, it's not going to get fixed by year end. (laughs) Like this company is hundreds of years old. It took a long time to get it this way. It's going to, take some time to unlearn and redirect and and reestablish what it is that you want to build. And I think it's important, you know, as diverse talent, but also as allies that we embrace that so that our efforts from an organizational perspective don't become performative specifically around this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: Yeah. I I think that's really important is (laughs) just like it was a journey to get to where we are, it's not going to be a check the box overnight, flip the switch, whatever cliche you want to use. And then suddenly, no, it's cool. Like Pfizer is now a super diverse company that's culturally inclusive. So we're good. We can go back to just making money. I, this is going to take a while and <laughs> you can't step in the same river twice. Right. I, I think after everything we've been through this year, there is no baseline. I don't think there's going back to normality. This is just we've got to use all these skills and and the lessons that you're teaching us to try to, you know, move forward the best that we can. So along those lines, what is a way that, that, that someone like me, I mean, I have a small company, maybe 15 people. What are some things that I could be doing that are actionable, you know, make this kind of change to, to make a more diverse and inclusive workforce without it being kind of, you know, I like your term performative.
2: Yeah, I think there are maybe three or four critical success factors that I like to share with leaders. You know, the first is definitely having leadership involvement and investment. So one of the things that I am often cautioning leaders around this year is the starting of the DEI committee, right? And so you you have people that feel passionate about things that have happened this year. Um, they raise their hand to be a part of the change, which is great. But more times than not, the people that raise their hand to be a part of that group aren't people with the power to actually l- at least sustain the change, right, even if the group is leading it. So I think it becomes important to ensure that, one, our leaders understand why we're moving in this direction if it's new or why we're doubling down on it if we've been here but maybe we've been stagnant Um, but also that there is this investment you know I I try very hard to and I think it's just because of my I don't come from an HR background and I used to shy away from this because I'm like well you know I don't I didn't work in HR like I shouldn't be but even you know my and I'm always learning through this work but my perspective on this work has definitely evolved a lot this year and really I think that that becomes a competitive advantage because I don't necessarily think about di from a hr perspective like it is a business imperative so the second Critical success factor is that whatever plan that the organization establishes has got to be connected with the business strategy. Like, this is a business, and you are in business to make a profit. So, how do we connect what we're building to be more inclusive with the growth strategy of the organization? And that's important not only because this work is so aligned to to the business and making the business better and growing the business, but also so that people understand this isn't just a one-off and that it's on the side, like they understand how it relates to their everyday work. So I think that becomes really critical. Um, And the third thing that I would share is just having an integrated learning and development strategy, because there is so much education around this topic that becomes really important. And so that becomes part of the investment to say, you know, how are we offering the learning and education that our leaders and our teams need to understand, one, why this is important, two, why we're connected to this work and how we plan to move forward in it to, to shift our culture.
0: Yeah, I really like that second point because, you know, <laughs> impacting the bottom line is going to be the best and most efficient and quickest way to elicit this type of change. I think that's true for you know, climate change and a number of other things that we're seeing play out. And once people realize that And this millennial generation is going to be, you know, in control of the coffers and is going to be, you know, consuming everything that we're making. And it's the most diverse generation uh, generational cohort that we ever had in America. And the one after it is is even more diverse that I think is going to be, you know, marrying with these two concepts that will finally, you know, hopefully open up the floodgates a little bit more and allow for that type of movement. Well, thank you so much for the time. I, I, I know you're on the road. I don't want to take up too much, but this has been a tremendous conversation. And, and you know, I would really encourage people to check out the book and also maybe tell folks who are listening the best way to get in touch with you, some of the services you provide, and then again, remind them when and how to access the book that's coming out.
2: Sure. So you can definitely connect with me at Thrive Through It book.com. So it's the title of the book and then book.com. You can um, purchase the book there. You can learn more about me there. We can definitely connect there as well. Feel free to leave your um, email address there on the book page and I'll be connecting with you that way. Also, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn at Brittany and Cole. From a social media perspective, that's probably the platform that I show up on most. I'm getting more active with Twitter. So you can also connect with me there at Brittany and Cole, to T's, A and Y. And then I'm on Instagram at Brittany N Cole. Um, in terms of the work, again, that we do in terms of career thrivers, if you're at an organization and you're looking to really, you know, maybe start with, you know, how, how do we make our teams more aware in terms of training or workshops? Um, definitely feel free to reach out. I also do, you know, speaking as well. So if it's more of a one-off event or, or opportunity to, to share with your team, you can connect with me at Brittany at is my email address. Or if you go to thrivethroughbook.com, you can click on the speaker tab, and there is a form there to get more information about speaking
0: opportunities and ways we can work together. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Brittany.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.